Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Koselia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I am joined as always by my friend, Hui Chen. Hi, Hui. Hi, Zach. We are joined for the first time by someone from government, right, Hui? Yes, and he's also a very dear friend. So we have Joe Pooks with us today. So Joe, as we often ask folks at the outset of the Better Way podcast, who is Joe? Tell us about yourself. I'm Joe Pooks, I'm currently Deputy Chief of the Environmental Crime Section at the Department of Justice, uh, where I work with a group of 35 criminal prosecutors who prosecute purely environmental crimes across the country. Um, my night job is I am the chair of Interpol's Pollution Crime Working Group, uh, which is sort of a collateral duty, but a lab- labor of love. Uh, and prior to coming to the department, I was a public defender in Maryland uh, for 10 years. Joe and I know each other from my time at DOJ. When Joe so kindly invited me to um, to a training workshop uh, on environmental crime, specifically to talk about, I think, how to choose a, a monitor um, at that time. And I remember Joe uh, emailing me saying, you know, give me a call and let me convince you that you should come to this training. And I said, Joe, no convincing needed. Um, I uh, it, it, it really was my my honor and pleasure uh, to be part of that training session that that you organized. And I was also just really fascinated to learn more about the work of the environmental crime section. So maybe you can also just fascinate our audience and tell us more about the work that the, the section does. Sure. Um, uh, well, the environmental crime section is located within the Environment and Natural Resources Division at DOJ. We're one of seven litigating divisions uh, that operate out of Washington, D.C. Uh, the Environment Division, where I am, was started in 1909, so uh, goes back quite a way. Um, and the Environmental Crime Section, or ECS as we refer to it, is one of nine sections within the Environment Division. We're the only criminal uh, section within the Environment Division. So we're the only uh, office that does criminal prosecutions in the environmental area. As, as, as I'm sure you are aware, uh, every district or federal district in the country has a U.S. Attorney's Office, and they're the lead federal prosecutor for all crimes in their district. Um, but as you can imagine, they have a lot of work on their plate, not just environmental cases. So the idea is that my my section uh, works with those US, U.S. attorney's offices to prosecute uh, environmental crimes uh, because we have the experience and the resources to sort of drill down on these resource intensive cases. Um, so we are able to practice in all 94 districts across the country uh, with the, as I said, 35 prosecutors in my office. When I started, environmental crime basically was pollution. 23 years ago, on my first day, that those were the cases we did under environmental crime. In that time, our portfolio has grown. We now handle illegal wildlife trafficking, illegal timber trafficking. Uh, we Animal welfare crimes, such as dogfighting, we picked up a few years ago, and worker safety violations, uh, including you know, death cases. So the portfolio we have now, it probably goes beyond what people think are traditional environmental crimes. What drew you to environmental crime originally? Well, uh, it's, it's, it's not a traditional path. Uh, I, as I said, I was a public defender in Maryland for 10 years. 
And one of my close friends and supervisors who got me into the public defender's office uh, went over and joined the environmental crimes uh, section herself, Deborah Harris, who's the current chief of the section. Uh, so after a few years in the public defender's office, when I was looking to do something else, she was talking about this great office. She had joined the environmental crime section. And so uh, that's what piqued my interest when she described the work and, and the mission uh, that they do. You started off saying that in the beginning, um, at least of your tenure there, um, there were really just pollution cases. I assume there are still pollution cases. So tell yes. us what kind of pollution cases um, do you guys prosecute? Um, well, there's a gamut of uh, Clean Air Act cases, Clean Water Act cases, dumping illegal discharges, illegal emissions from, from factories. And again, the cases we do, being crimes, have a certain mental element to them. These aren't just pure accidents in most cases. There's some kind of intentional conduct that's going on. But on the pollution side, uh, anything that threatens or harms the environment or public health, such as you know, burying drums of hazardous waste and you know, in a field to, uh, you know, taking the monitors off your smokestacks at the factory. When we have our cases, I mean, it's important to punish fast conduct or bad behavior. And that's where our fines and jail come in uh, in terms of sentences. But we also like to sort of Im uh, affect or impact future behavior, both to make sure these violations don't happen again, and in many cases, make things better. And that's where as most of our corporate cases as part of the sentence, we generally require the defendants to impose what we call an environmental compliance plan. Uh, and in broad strokes, what that means is they have to pay to hire an expert to come in and evaluate their uh, environmental management, make recommendations on how things could be done better, uh, and then put those improvements in as a condition of probation. And so if the, the monitor says you have to do X, Y, and Z, and they don't do it, they have to go back to court and answer to the judge. And if the judge is not happy, they can be resentenced. So it's a compliance plan with teeth, we, we, we hope. In this area, of particularly of, of pollution, what are some of the root causes that you've seen? Many of the cases that we do, uh, we end up in the corporation or the corporate officer we're talking with is, how, how could this have happened? And if you do sort of a hot wash or walk backwards, you see very easily how they got in the situation uh, they were in and a couple steps uh, could have prevented that very expensive mistake or or crime from happening. And so what we see is in many cases, uh, companies have in theory a environmental policy or environmental program. And it's in many cases, it's very long and it sits on a shelf. And when we ask to see it, it's covered in like three inches of dust. Uh, but it's not something that they actually take seriously until, you know, we're calling and then suddenly environmental compliance is is an, an important program to them. Uh, so uh, I would say in a lot of cases, uh, it's just indifference or lack of attention on the environmental program that gets a lot of these companies in trouble. So we, we talk a lot about uh, the role that data and analytics can play in a more effective ethics and compliance program, broadly speaking. One of the challenges that we often see, though, is that for most crimes or most areas of interest uh, when it comes to business ethics and integrity, it's hard to actually measure whether folks are making good decisions. It's hard to actually measure the behaviors that support ethics and integrity. My hypothesis is that 
in the environmental crime space, it may actually be easier to measure some of this stuff, particularly when it comes to something like pollution or emissions. And so I'm wondering what you've seen in terms of the role that data plays in both prosecuting these crimes, but also driving better decision-making on the part of companies going forward and what potential lessons we may be able to learn from a business ethics and integrity perspective more broadly through the work that you do. Yes, I, I think theoretically in the environmental area, the issue of data uh, uh, does provide you with some answers or some clues ahead of time where you might be able to head off some of these problems. The problem is if no one's looking at the data, uh, it, it's not really very helpful. At least a quarter of all corporate prosecutions the department does are environmental cases. Uh, what we have seen pretty consistently is a focus on the bottom line, uh, focus on profit and keeping the system going. And I don't mean to imply some sort of nefarious, you know, uh, we don't care if we're polluting, it's it's all about the bottom line. But th that's how it generally shakes out. And and uh, when, when, when people are looking at putting money into environmental compliance, they're looking at that as a cost. And no one's thinking that if something goes wrong, we could be sitting here looking at a million dollar fine uh, or a corporate prosecution. And so it's hard to uh, prioritize environmental compliance in the abstract. And so the challenge that we've seen is getting companies and individuals to think of it as a problem proactively. Some of our vessel pollution prosecutions that we've done, there's a lot of data about if somebody wanted to dig in and we do it after the case comes up about, you know, where's the waste going? How's it being managed? But no one's asking those questions. What they're worried about is how much fuel is being expended, how much each voyage is costing. And so uh, when we go in afterwards, it's clear to us that they could have found the data. And if they asked the right questions, actually pretty cheaply found out that there were problems. But there's no incentive for individuals to find problems in many cases, if that makes sense. It, it does. And it's, a, I think, a narrative that we hear and talk about a lot in this space where um, our colleagues and friends who are in-house ethics and compliance professionals are often challenged by the fact that their role, their function is viewed as a cost center as opposed to, you know, a revenue generator um, or, or a business um, component. And I'm wondering from your perspective, if there is a way to shift that mindset from thinking about, you know, compliance, thinking about doing good uh, as something that isn't just a cost of doing business, but that actually can be um, a value add in and of itself. I think a lot of that happens with leadership from the top. The Andon Cord with, with Toyota, for example, there's a, sort of an incentive that anybody in the company, anybody in the production line can pull the cord and stop everything as soon as they see a problem. Um, and in fact, it's not only can they, but it's sort of encouraged. There's, that's part of their job. If there's a problem, they see a problem, um, they, they raise it, and that's from the top. That's the sort of corporate culture uh, that I think needs to be encouraged because, we, as I said, we see many cases where there's a you know four-binder environmental compliance policy that no one has ever seen. But when your manager's telling you, don't worry about that, you know, you know get rid of this stuff, that's the policy that gets put in place. The other thing I would say is resources. You can usually tell with a company how much the environmental program is funded, um, if they have the resources, and also who they report to. Uh, a lot of times uh, in, in good companies, the environmental person is reporting to the board or the chairman 
And if that's happening, the chairman asks questions and that 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 uh, signals to the company or the employees, that's something we take seriously. If they're buried way at the bottom of the org chart, sending in written reports once a year, that's also a sign that perhaps the company doesn't value the environmental program as much as they should. Yeah, that that resonates a lot. Operational excellence should be should include compliance as opposed to things sort of operating in silos. When it comes to a lot of businesses and corporations, certain types of crime, there's compliance that has to do with ethics and putting things in place in terms of business decisions and making, you know, uh, the right ethical decisions within a company. Environmental crime is a little different because in addition to the ethics, there are systems that need to be put in place um, and generating the data that, that you referred to earlier um, that uh, um, will let companies assess whether things are, are being done the right way. And so it, 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 there's a lot of technical elements to an environmental compliance plan that you might not see in other corporate compliance plans. If you put a good person in a bad system, the system will win every time. So um, you need to have a program in place that's going to be effective throughout the entire company and be long lasting because you might have a good person you know, now, but that person leaves you know, the, the system's going to be what remains. And so it is, I think, traditionally more complicated with environmental cases to have an effective compliance plan. I think it's also interesting when we start talking about data and the specifics of what people need to be monitoring and paying attention to, it really gets very specialized, you know, when you look at different areas of compliance. So, you know, you, we, we've been talking about pollution, but the other area that you mentioned is worker safety. Now, safety is a very established industry with a lot of indicators that's built into their sort of industry norm. Um, I also was very interested in a, in a data point that you mentioned that we don't hear about enough is that one quarter of the corporate cases prosecuted by DOJ are environmental cases. So tell tell us more about the the work that you guys do in the in the worker safety area. What kind of cases are being prosecuted there? We'll have to give credit to Deborah, my boss, who actually brought the worker safety stuff to our program. But what we had seen is in the worker safety area, uh, uh, in terms of enforcement, the only real criminal penalties under the, the the worker safety laws, you know, is if someone dies, and the maximum worker safety penalty when someone dies is I think six months. Um, we were noticing in a lot of our environmental cases that were coming up, there were also worker safety violations. Some of the big cases with some of the, the, the factories or manufacturing facilities, if they're committing environmental crimes, they're probably also violating worker safety uh, standards. And so uh, we're able to work to bring worker safety violations within our portfolio. Um, and so the, the violations that we do are cases involving worker deaths. And if you saw some of the facts, they would be um, uh, quite traumatic uh, in terms of the, the, the mistakes. But again, uh, it has to do with uh, compliance. If, if, if the maximum penalty you're looking at, if the worst case scenario happens is six months and your inspectors are, don't have much authority, you're really not going to prioritize that. And so what we've tried to do is prosecute some of these cases to let companies uh, and managers know that, you know, this is something that the government takes seriously and there are consequences if you don't do what you're supposed to be doing and, and bring some of the more traditional criminal statutes that we do into play to try and ramp up the consequences when companies and people don't do what they're supposed to do. 
On that note, how much of your work is prosecuting corporations versus individuals? And what's been the approach in terms of bringing charges against individuals in the environmental crime space? I would say generally our preferred approach is when we do a criminal prosecution as we both prosecute the corporation and the individual responsible for the conduct. Um, obviously, the individual is the person turning the wrench or making the decision, and there need to be some consequences there. And, and again, when we talk about individuals, we're talking generally about people who have supervisory authority, the, the guy at the end of the line that's being told to do something uh, or he loses his job. That's not the person we're looking at to prosecute to affect change. So it would be a manager or someone with some responsibility because we want other managers to know if you don't do this, you know, you could be prosecuted, but it's not just the individual. Uh, we also try and make sure the company is held accountable for what it did, or in most cases, what it didn't do, because we think the company's in the best position to affect change going forward. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not just if an individual commits a, an offense and he works for the company, the company's held liable. There's, there's got to be some connection that he's doing or she's doing it uh and in, 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 to advance the company's interest. But if, if that's done as sort of an agent of the company, we prosecute the company. So the short answer to your question is both. Um, and the department is also trying to emphasize individual accountability because sometimes the reverse is true. Company is willing to pay a couple extra, you know, thousand or a million uh, if we agree to let the individuals go. Um, but, you know, if, if it's just a, a fine or a check that's being written, sometimes that's not a very effective deterrent uh, for future conduct. And so we're, we're, the department's very focused on making sure it's not just a corporate only prosecution, but the individuals responsible are being prosecuted. We talked a little bit about how certain types of compliance are ethics driven, so for lack of a better way to describe it, and, and some are much more sort of system driven. In my opinion, almost all the compliance programs really need to have a blend of the two. One of the things that I find interesting and sometimes a little frustrating is that different types of compliance in the companies are not really integrated. So, so here are the people who are doing sort of environmental compliance over here, they don't even know the people who do other types of compliance like antitrust or anti-corruption exist and vice versa. Some of the cases that you do, you see companies having challenges in more than just environmental compliance. And in some cases, they are facing sort of departmental prosecution in multiple areas. What are your thoughts about how companies might be able to integrate these different types of compliance a little better? Well, I, I think generally compliance in broad strokes is can be consistent in many different areas. And one of the reasons I kept bothering you when we first met was uh, you actually had a systematic approach to compliance. It, one of the frustrating things in a lot of our cases is we encourage companies to come up with a compliance plan. They know their businesses, they know what they need to focus on. But the response we almost always say is, well, what did the last defendant have to do? Um, that's our bare minimum we want to settle for. And we try and say, look, I think the last thing a company wants is a bunch of lawyers in Washington to come up with their compliance plan because it's not going to be uh, perhaps very efficient um, and they're going to be spending money on something that might not be uh, very effective. 
So I think compliance as a as as a as a concept isn't subject matter specific. There are some things, as I said before, in the environmental area that are specific. But if you have a good plan or a good program, you can hire people to get you the information or set up something that's environmental uh, in in particular. So um, I, I think whether it's ethics or environment or whatever other factors come into a compliance plan, being able to set up programs, accountability, reporting, that's the key part to make an effective compliance program. And, and, and that's that's something that is not environmentally specific. So uh, just understanding that it's a skill set, not just paying lip service to it, is, is, is a concept that I think is hard for a lot of companies. Because I'll say many of the companies we face aren't, you know, these evil corporations or people setting out to do harm or commit environmental crimes. They're generally decent people. They just have not thought about this area until, you know, we show up at the door um, and then are somewhat at a loss and say, well, what's the least we can do to get the government off our back as opposed to being proactive? I think one of the things that really frustrates me is the 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 narrow use of the word ethics in the in the ethics and compliance space, because to me, if I am going to be talking about ethics as your your driving force, then not polluting my environment is part of my ethics. It certainly is for me. Um, not killing my workers, certainly part of my ethics. Um, wanting to, you know, wanting your colleagues to come to work and go home safely. Um, to, how is that anything but ethical? Conceptually, to me, this is all ethics. And, and to me, there's not enough coverage in terms of the, the way the word ethics is used in this space to really think through these issues. So there is that sort of the conceptual level, but then there is the technical level of how, how do you implement the safety rules and the, you know, the, the waste disposal systems. There's, to, there's really no contradiction to combining the two, that, that we are ethically motivated to care about these things. And then we deploy proper resources and skill sets to make sure those things get done and our concerns get addressed. When people talk about compliance and ethics and putting a plan in place, it, every talk's a good game. And then when someone shows up and says, well, this is what we think needs to be done for compliance, suddenly, you know, people are like, well, we don't need to do that much. Or, you know, that's that's that you're asking for too much in the way of resources or a commitment. And that that's the disappointing thing that I, you, you and I have both seen in many different contexts move off the the corporate aspects a little bit and um i want to talk something that's certainly of interest to me as a person and i imagine uh, among our listeners a lot of people are animal lovers and uh, i remember sitting there in the training session that you organized um when the people were presenting on animal welfare um the pictures that were shown and you know the the type of cases that you were doing they they really touch my heart. Um, so both the animal welfare area and the wildlife trafficking area, I, I'm, you know, it, it's something that is is sort of near near and dear to me. And uh, tell us more about the work that you guys do in in both of those areas. When I started, when I mentioned we my section did mainly pollution. There was another section in my division that handled wildlife. Uh, offenses and they had wildlife prosecutors and the decision was made 
let's put all the prosecutors together. So the wildlife prosecutors and the pollution prosecutors all came together in the environmental crime section. And I will say in terms of the number of our cases, probably 40 to 50% of our cases now are wildlife prosecutions and involving many offenses, you know, here in the U.S., but also the international illegal wildlife trafficking uh, uh, sort of offenses, which there was far more of than I ever thought I would know about. The animals are important, and that's what gets people in the door. But when you start, you know, looking underneath it, you start seeing the amount of money and organized crime and international or global criminal groups involved. It's, it's really a, a crime area um, uh, uh, that, that is very complex. Uh, but uh, it, it, as I said, it, it's a, an, an important part of our practice that we didn't have when I started. And similarly, um, with the animal welfare, uh, and with animal welfare, there's a couple of different components. Primarily, what we do, most of our cases have to do with animal fighting. Uh, and what we had seen is there were cases uh, that were coming up across the country and different offices, U.S. Attorney's offices had different resources to pay attention to it, but it was sort of a disparate uh, approach with 94 different districts and someone had come up with the idea and there was a group within the department that gets credit for this to say we need a place to put these cases that's going to have responsibility for tracking and doing them we're not the only office that does them but we we sort of have a, a national perspective and so we picked these up a few years ago and um uh again it's a significant part of our practice we can mention we do cases with animal fighting and We've seen cases in every part of the country. You would think maybe, you know, it, it's regional or it's one one off in this district. But no, I think you can go to any district and find animal fighting operations um, uh, going on. And again, if you dig down, these are animal fighting operations involving, in many cases, organized crime, gangs, the guns, gambling. And so more traditional crime areas uh, than you might think of when you just think of animal fighting. See, that was what I, I also, you know, found fascinating. I think most people wouldn't have thought of that. Out of curiosity, I want to ask you, what kind of wild animals um, are being imported and exported or, or trafficked uh, around in the U.S. and the world? Um, well, I would, first of all, let me give a disclaimer. My wildlife colleagues would be aghast that I would be expressing any opinion in the wildlife area because their immediate response would be, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, uh, for example, a lot of stuff with ivory, rhino horn, uh, is, is a huge industry in some cases per ounce. In some cases, it's, it's more valuable than gold. Um, and so there's just a huge demand um, for this around the world. And a lot of the stuff is being trafficked through the U.S. or coming into the U.S. Um, there are other exotic species, um, you know, uh, reptiles, birds, that there's a huge trade. I mean, whatever you can think of, there's probably a trade in it. That's what I've learned in the course of my work in the section, stuff that you never thought would be of any use or value to anyone. There's a market for it. That the charismatic megafauna, as they mentioned with the rhinos and the elephants, people know about and that shooting them to get the horns. But there's also a whole industry with smaller, less charismatic wildlife, let's say, um, that, that involves a lot of money that goes around around the world. It's, it's very large on a on a financial scale. Joe, um, you mentioned that, that your your nighttime job is uh, working with Interpol. 
just give us a, some sense of how the international law enforcement community collaborate in the area of environmental crime. Well, it, it, it's it's getting better. And as you can imagine, the challenges within the United States of coordinating with different agencies can be immense. And if you multiply that by, you know, 194 different countries with working with Interpol, the 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 challenges are 194 times uh, uh, more challenging. And uh, Interpol has several different working groups in the area of environmental crime. I, as I said, I'm chair of the Pollution Crime Working Group. They have one with wildlife, illegal fishing, and illegal timber forestry. Uh, and and it brings together law enforcement agencies from different countries to work together. It, there's, there's no real role authority. Uh, no one has particular jurisdiction. It's just more of a collaborative effort. And what we've seen is in all these areas, and my focus has been on the pollution side, is uh, that a lot of the crimes that are happening have an international or transnational effect, uh, say, particularly with the export of hazardous waste. Plastics is an issue that has, has come up. And again, it's sort of a tragedy of the commons to some extent that, you know, it's once it leaves our country, it's not our problem anymore. And 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 so the communication law enforcement to law enforcement has been a challenge. And hopefully this group has improved that. But uh, we have seen in a lot of these areas organized crime uh, becoming involved because they're not they're not picky. Their view is, can we make money off of it? And what are the chances of our getting caught? And unfortunately, in the environmental area, particularly with waste and pollution right now, um, there's a lot of money to be made and the, the risk of getting caught and the consequences are not as high as we would like to be. And so we're hoping through these groups to raise awareness and make make the penalty sort of decrease the incentive because um, we want people to know that, you know, someone is watching. All right. So now it's that time of getting to know Joe Pooks. I'll start with question number one, Joe. You have a choice of two questions that you can answer here. Uh, the first is, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Or is there a quality about yourself that you're currently working to improve? And if so, what? I, I will give one answer because I think both questions lead to the same result. Um, and, and again, being a, a lawyer, I will refuse to give just one answer to the question. I will ask it to do two. I would say, first of all, is patience. Um, and in particular, day-to-day -day patience with your bureaucracy. And I would also say humility. Um, and part of that is, again, having been in a place for 23 years, I think it's natural. You start to think, oh, I know, I've seen this before. I know all the answers. And every day coming in, thinking like, well, I don't know the answer. Um, it's, it's a skill that I'm still trying to work on. Next question is, you again, this is also a choose one of two options. You can answer either, who is your favorite mentor? Or who do you wish you could be mentored by? Um, well, it, it might be semantics, but I'm a little nervous about seeing mentor because I, I don't want anybody to have to take responsibility with the final product being me. So I might I might uh, uh, phrase it another way in terms of folks that I try and emulate. Um, and I'll, I'll give three off the top of my head. They sound a little trite, but my mom, uh, who went to law school when I was you know, in junior high or high school, uh, who showed me that, you know, there is a career in the law. And that's probably one of the reasons I went into it. Uh, I think I mentioned uh, my my friend and current boss, Deborah Harris, uh, who is a, a tough boss, but is, you know, taught, you know, being in government good enough isn't necessarily good enough. You have you can do better. 
on has held us in the office to a high standard. And then I have a good friend, Willie Wilson, uh, uh, who has taught me a lot about thinking big picture, both um, environmentally and, and, and personally. Uh, and again, emphasizing maximum compliance and, 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 and trying to get the best result, not just the, the satisfactory result. All right. The third question is, what is the best job paid or unpaid that you've ever had? I haven't had that many. So the, I would say uh, um, that the choice is not the, the choices aren't that many. I've, obviously I've been where I am now for 23 going on 24 years. So I would say currently working in the crime section has been my best job. My 10 years in the public defender's office, also a great job. And the common theme I think in both is the people I've had to the opportunity to work with and sort of a mission driven job. It's not coming in, figuring, all right, how do I do my eight hours so I can go home? Um, it's, it's, it's more of a, of a, of a calling or a passion. All right. So next question is what is your favorite thing to do? Watching uh Celtic football club play uh, every week, particularly when they're uh, beating Rangers. What is your favorite place? Home. Spending time with the family, that would be my favorite place. Number six is what makes you proud? I kind of refer to it, one of the favorite job thing is that, that I've been able to last 23, 24 years in the crime section. Uh, I work with uh, excellent people, uh, very committed people, and they allow me to come back every day. Being a poser, the fact they let me come back and accept me as one of their own, that's what makes me proud. And, and, and coming in to and be associated with the great people that I've met throughout my time at the department. That that's what makes me proudest. So we'll go from the the deep to the very shallow. So what is the email sign off that you use most frequently? Uh, I, I'd heard this question in another context, and I, I just feel very unoriginal. It's usually just Joe with my sign off. The thing that's been most useful for to me is I had to add a five minute delay because sometimes with my emails um, I, I can be a little intemperate. And so I have found a very valuable lesson. This does not go out until five minutes later. So I have a cooling off period. The The other part of it that's interesting is I had originally a three-minute delay and learned that was not sufficient time. So I had to up it to five. So that is such day. a that is such a wonderful better way that I I hope lots of people will take to heart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to find your own time. That's the I had to, I had to learn. The next one is, what trend in your field is most overrated? I would say uh, that sort of a tendency to try and come up with short-term, easy, maybe trendy solutions to complicated long-term problems. It's nice to have a, you know, a, a slogan or a catchphrase for, to, to approach a problem, but many of the problems, particularly in the environmental area, are complicated and long-lasting, and there aren't necessarily easy um solutions to it the final question is and i'm mindful that it's not even 9 a.m so this is going to be a real reflection on play and i what word would you use to describe your day so far enjoyable um because i'm chatting with you guys i will say there aren't many people besides way that would get me to get up at 8 a.m to do a uh a podcast uh so um uh, happy to do it this has been very enjoyable thank you so much joe Thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. 
You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.